Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. In addition to your support, we welcome your feedback. Please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or by emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Krish Vignaraja, Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, former policy director for First Lady Michelle Obama. Krish is also a former senior advisor for Secretaries of State Clinton and Kerry. She's a former law clerk for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Krish, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Good morning, and thank you for having me. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? I think much of my career has been um, in in that uh, line of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, I've been in the Obama administration for five years, mm-hmm. and it was such an important part of my career. Uh, it was formative in the sense that I worked for leaders who showed what a new generation of leadership with a clear vision can achieve. And for me, the accomplishments, uh, whether they were healthcare related, whether they were education focused, um, signified what uh, you know, kind of advancing public interest meant. On a topic of education, you have unique pedigree uh, that, that, that you bring to this gubernatorial race. Now, you have a master's degree, uh, a law degree. You have another degree from, from the United Kingdom, from Oxford. Uh, how is that educational experience preparing you to run for governor, and how did it lead to your experience? How did it impact, impact your experience at the Secretary of State, at the uh, State Department? Yeah, I mean, education, um, I believe, is the springboard to opportunity. Mm-hmm. It is why it is the most important issue for me mm-hmm. as I run for governor, and candidly, it is how I went from. Woodlawn High School, um, kind of a school right on the Baltimore County city line that struggled, Mm -hmm. um, to the White House uh, because I had a chance, as you said, um, to get degrees at Yale and Oxford and Yale Law School. Um, And what the Maryland public school system prepared me Mm -hmm. to do was to realize my potential. And I want to make sure that every child has that opportunity. Now, you have a few policy agenda items that you've outlined in your gubernatorial campaign. One is full-day universal pre-kindergarten, and another is to increase expenditures in the Maryland budget on public education by $2.9 billion. Can you elaborate on those two initiatives? Sure. I mean, this is obviously something that the Kerwin Commission, as a bipartisan commission, has been looking at and thankfully um, is moving in the direction towards uh, making sure that Maryland fixes its funding inequities. Because I think for too many people, what you see is that there are two Marylands. Um, Even within a county, you see that there are kind of world-class high schools and middle schools and elementary schools and other schools where 
you know, the administrators are struggling to make sure that they can um, keep teachers on payroll, uh, that kids are struggling to stay focused on what their teacher is, tr- is teaching mm-hmm. because they're um, dealing with sweltering heat or water that you can't even drink. And so for me, it's about making sure that every child, regardless of what district they, you know, what district or what zip code they grow up in, mm-hmm. that they have an equal opportunity to access to education, to a quality, um, comprehensive education. So that is really what I'm focused on in terms of the funding inequities. Um, in terms of universal pre-K, um, we know that in Maryland, more than a third of four-year-olds either do not have access to the financing to go to school, um, to go, to get into universal pre-K, or that there's not a seat in the classroom. And I want to make sure that we change that because we realize during those formative years, it is critical that we guarantee um, a, you know, kind of start, a uh, head start, you could say. Now, this isn't the first time that a Democratic candidate for governor in Maryland is proposing universal pre-K. In fact, that was one of the primary pillars of Lieutenant Governor Anthony Brown's bid for governor in 2014. Of course, he lost to Hogan, who ran on a platform of fiscal responsibility and, and not increasing taxes. And uh, many of Democratic voters who may be considering you uh, to support you with their vote on June 26, 2018, may be saying, well, it didn't work for Brown against Hogan. And the idea is a Democratic voter may want a Democratic nominee to beat Governor Hogan. So why would you, on a, using a similar platform, be able to beat Hogan in the one hand? And the second hand, how would we pay for these large expenditures? Would there be a, a tax increase? Or would there be some sort of cuts to current services? Yeah, so let me take those in reverse order. Um, so there certainly would not be a tax increase. Um, and this is where... Uh, when you want to look at your values, um, I always say look at your budget mm-hmm. because, you know, as we kind of hear from Governor Hogan's proposal of a $9 billion initiative to expand our roads, um, clearly the money's there. Mm-hmm. The question is how do you allocate it? And for me, in many ways, Maryland has a 1950s budget in the sense that we spend as much on prisons and policing as we do on higher education. We spend twice as much on mass um, on roads as we do on mass transit. And so for me, it's how do you decide what to invest in? And universal pre-K is one of those clear examples where we know for every dollar we invest, we get a return of 4 to $7 um, in savings. And so this, of course, means that it just it pays for itself. In terms of how we actually get this done, um, in the short term, uh, as I said, no tax increase. Um, this is where you can actually develop the types of public-private partnerships that I um, did while I was at the White House working for uh, Michelle Obama as her policy director, because um, Let Girls Learn was, uh, you know, my top priority. And uh, through that initiative, um, I forged over 100 partnerships uh, where we were able to leverage $1 billion of U.S. government taxpayer dollars with over $3 billion of private funding. And so Universal Pre-K is a perfect example of where you see foundations and um, private parties having a vested interest. Um, so in Boston, for example, you have the Barr Foundation helping the government, knowing that this is a, a smart investment. Um, in Philadelphia, um, you have um, you know the, the, Penn, the William Penn Foundation um, investing. And likewise, I know that this is an opportunity where through public-private partnerships, um, we can make sure that there is a guarantee of funding because this needs to be one of our top priorities. And just to clarify very quickly, when you mention public-private partnerships, so the uh, state government partnering with foundations, are, and, you, and you mentioned the word invest. Do you mean 
that these foundations are expecting a return on their investment or that uh, and in addition to the original capital that they invest or are you saying that these foundations are providing grants which are a uh, a more abstract investment in the population yeah so um so i'm gonna actually be lo- looking at two two sources of fi- financing um the kind of most uh, probably easily understood mm-hmm. is the latter, which you described, which is basically a grant because a foundation realizes mm-hmm. that uh, this is a critical investment, and if government's not going to pay for it, that um, they know that it's the right thing to do. It's partly why the Gates Foundation has been looking into this very closely. Um, but the second piece is uh, social impact bonds mm-hmm. um, because we know that there are private investors out there who believe that this is an important investment to make, and they know the return on investment in terms of the 4 to $7 um, for every dollar we invest. And so in that case, there is um, oftentimes kind of a nominal investment, but this is one of those situations where, um, you know, obviously we'll need to kind of shop this with investors if we don't need to pay them a return on investment. As I said, with the foundations, that hasn't been the case. Um uh, then I would definitely go that route. But, um, you know, in some cases you can get much more capital because you're giving them a nominal amount. And in that case, you know, I think that is worth exploring. Now, you mentioned social impact bonds. Both Moody's and Standard & Poor's has consistently, have consistently uh, provided the state of Maryland with a triple-A bond rating. Now, given all these increased expenditures in uh, education, but you also said I'll be partnered with the creation of 250,000 private jobs, investment in, in infrastructure projects. You say you support the red line in Baltimore, um, looking to invest in mass transit. I wonder what you believe, if any, the impact would be on any of your initiatives on the AAA bond rating, which is so treasured in the state of Maryland. Absolutely, and there's a, a rightful reason for us treasuring it, because I do think it um, matters a great deal, and I am absolutely committed to maintaining that. Um, what I think we need to think about is that we have such incredible opportunities here in Maryland where uh, with both the money that we have, we can reallocate it much more strategically, uh, but also more than that, we can grow our economy, right? I mean, part of why I uh, wanted to highlight the untapped potential of our um, our workforce um, and the ability of our economy to guarantee more Marylanders jobs is because I have no doubt in my mind that my guarantee of 250,000 uh, new jobs in the next four years um, is frankly a conservative estimate. Let's for speak example. about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so how so so it's a conservative estimate. How did you arrive at that estimate, and what is your game plan to get Maryland there? Yeah, so you know, there's um, probably two um, key ways in which um, I believe we can absolutely achieve that, and frankly, go beyond it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I could uh, firmly commit um, to uh, you know saying something and delivering mm-hmm. with the red line. Mm-hmm. We know that in the short term it will create about um, 10,000 jobs Mm -hmm. in terms of the construction of the red line. But as soon as it is in place, we know that it will unlock 250,000 jobs that exist that are not able to be um, uh, kind of used um, to put Maryland workers in those jobs because people don't have a way to get to those jobs. And you're saying in 2017, right now under Governor Hogan, there are 250,000 job vacancies that could be filled if individuals could just simply get to those locations. Exactly right, yeah. And this was, you know, an analysis that was done um, in advance of sort of the proposal of the red line, and this is where, you know, it is clear that um, this is not just a line item on a budget. 
this is a gateway to opportunity. And I know the personal experience that my family has had with that because when we first moved to Maryland, we were living in a basement apartment in Edmondson Heights. And my father had gotten a job as a Baltimore City public school teacher, but you know, my parents came with no jobs and $200 in their pockets. And so we couldn't afford um, to buy a, a car to drive around. So what my father would do is he would walk to Route 40, he would hop on a bus, and that was what would take him to his high school. But if he didn't have that opportunity, then a family of four, instead of being able to support themselves, would frankly have been on welfare. And that's where you realize that these types of mass transit um, uh, opportunities that Governor Hogan has not uh, gotten done, and in fact has um, nixed, is um, critically important to our economy. But it's going to be more than that. I also want to grow our innovative economy because we should be competitive with California and Massachusetts. When you think about uh, the assets we have in state, they are um, uh, they are ones that any state in the country would want quite candidly. We have the highest number of federal dollars spent on research here in Maryland. We have the second highest percentage of graduate degrees. And yet, when it comes to where we stand um, uh, for startups, we're 28th. In terms of how much capital investment we get in Maryland, we get one half of 1% of venture capital. And that's where I think there's an opportunity. I lived in Massachusetts for a year, and I know what it was like when you had a state that invested in commercializing the research. We're not doing that now. There's a couple examples of what we've done in the past that have been very successful. So in 2006, we had a stem cell fund, um, which basically allowed for some of the stem cell research we were doing in state already with taxpayer dollars to actually create private sector jobs. Instead in Maryland, we use um, government jobs as a substitute and not a supplement for our economy. So just one example. If you took out the federal jobs in the state, we would have the worst unemployment rate in the country. And that's where I think there are opportunities. So Maryland does have a Department of Business and Economic Development, and there are a lot of economic development agencies in counties around and municipalities around the state of Maryland. There's also um, a, uh, a public VC fund. Uh, there's a Maryland Biotech Park in Baltimore, uh, and then there's a whole Biotech Cor 270 corridor in Montgomery County, Maryland. There are um, increasingly incubators in different parts of the state, and you mentioned that we're not doing a good job with helping startups, with attracting venture capital, and with commercializing research. We do have the NIH, and again, um, the, bi the biotech corridor is right up the road from NIH. So can you elaborate on what we're not doing right now, and if you were governor, how that would change? Yeah, I mean, the two, I think, clearest examples, um, but really there are many more that I could speak to. Um, are the fact that uh, we have some of the pieces, we're not putting them all together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have, as you said, the 270 quarter, but we're not growing it further. Um, you know, and this is where I think when you look at uh, cybersecurity, um, we see what a strong um, economy looks like when you actually build on the opportunities. And going forward, those are just going to grow because Virginia is a great case in point. And we're not nearly where we could be. Um, likewise, when it comes to, uh, you know, the opportunities of putting the pieces together here in Maryland, as you said, we have world-class universities like um, UMBC, Johns Hopkins. Um, we have uh, amazing federal institutions like the FDA, NIH, um, Fort Detrick, NIST. And yet, when it comes to actually um, connecting them into a sort of a pipeline for private sector jobs, that's where you see that there isn't the kind of job growth that could exist. 
So going back to the topic of becoming competitive in a general election, should you win a Democratic nomination, as we spoke of earlier, you, if you were to win the nomination, you'd be going against Governor Hogan, an incumbent trying to ru running for re-election. Governor Hogan's main platform is job creation and economic growth. You differentiate yourself very clearly on a number of your policy issues. The question is, how would you defeat him? How would your ideas resonate more with voters than his ideas? And especially, how would you out, outdo him on his own top priority issue, which is job creation? Yeah, and it's a great question because that is exactly my plan um, in terms of the, the, the general and what I intend to do as governor. Because Governor Hogan has talked about being open for business, but when you see how less competitive we are than neighboring states, um, you realize that there are are clear opportunities that he is not taken advantage of and shown leadership on. So, you know, compared to other states, our, our wages are stagnant. Um, you know, compared to other states, uh, particularly Virginia, you don't see that our economic growth um, is, is on par. And so what I'm going to do is stress that as a Democrat, uh, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs are going to be a core part of my mission. Um, you know, you asked a question earlier about, uh, you know, uh, Lieutenant Governor Brown and, um, you know, one of his proposals was universal pre-K. I think quite candidly, what we need to do as Democrats is make sure that people fully appreciate uh, how Governor Hogan has fallen um, short of what he promised, but also what we're going to deliver. Because I think too often we as a party sometimes just highlight that we are anti-Trump and we are anti-Hogan. But the fact is that 2018, winning or losing, is going to depend on us getting people to the polls. And unfortunately, people don't vote with their feet just against something. They want to stand up for something. And that's what I'm going to be um, focusing my message on. And so for me, it is focusing on um, education, as we've touched on, the economy, uh, the environment, and supporting working families. And, you know, don't get me wrong, we do have a job to do because Governor Hogan, he's a crafty politician. He fakes left and he moves right. In many ways, uh, people don't appreciate that our schools have gone from first to fifth um, in under his watch. Uh, in many cases, people don't appreciate that our economy is, um, in terms of uh, unemployment rate, um, is 28th to 33rd in the nation. We shouldn't be middle of the pack or, you know, kind of the second tier. We should be leading the nation, and that is what I'm going to deliver under my administration. So you mentioned your policy message uh, and how that might resonate with voters, but Voters are also interested in your backstory, in your narrative, and knowing who you are as a woman. You have a very interesting story, uh, having been an immigrant as an infant, uh, having been a uh, political asylee escaping civil war in Sri Lanka, and of course, you've mentioned that being uh, you've been you've been referred to as the embodiment of the American dream, and you have uh, prioritized. Uh, diversity as uh, an issue that is important to you, uh, particularly as a woman running for office. Can you elaborate on your personal narrative and how you hope that that might appeal to voters? Sure. Um, so I was nine months when my family uh, came um, to America in Maryland. Um, they were fleeing a civil war. Um, we weren't actually political asylees, but uh, you know my parents had been desperate to leave the country um, because thousands had been killed, um, children had been conscripted into the war uh, as the country descended um, into uh, you know an ethnic um, 
uh, conflict that for, you know, well over a decade, um, much more than that. Uh, and just to jump in for one sure. second, for the benefit of our listeners, if you're interested in learning about the Sri Lankan Civil War and exactly what constituted that and how Sri Lanka emerged, you can listen to our previous episode with the Sri Lankan ambassador to the United States on Public Interest Podcast. So, oh, Chris, that's thanks. fantastic. Yeah, no, no, of course. Um, and so my parents actually were uh, looking to go to any country that would um, take us uh, Unfortunately, um, at the outset, America was not an option, so they actually had their bags packed to go to Nigeria, mm. and northern Nigeria at that. Um, so, you know, kind of the region. Which is now the dangerous region. Yes, exactly. So okay. the, da- the region where Boko Haram, um, a terrorist organization, uh, kidnapped 276 girls just for going to school. And so you can probably understand in part why education is so important to me, because I realized that my life could have been very different, whether we had remained in Sri Lanka or moved to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, you know, we had a chance just as uh, we were about to leave the country, um, you know, we, I guess you could say, hit the jackpot, and we got the golden tickets to come here to America. And I will tell you that growing up in Maryland, we realized what um, it meant for a community to embrace diversity, to embrace immigrants. Um, our neighbors weren't just neighbors. They were family. And so when my family, when my parents had to um, go to work or they had to run an errand or actually even go to school, uh, my parents entrusted us to neighbors because they couldn't afford babysitters. And that is the Maryland that I grew up in. Um, and that is the Maryland that I am fighting for because at a time when President Trump demonizes immigrants um, and spews this xenophobia that I think is frankly un-American, I would expect Maryland, given our rich diversity, to have a governor who stands up and fights back. And yet Governor Hogan has sat silent the entire time that, um, you know, our president has uh, sort of attacked um, uh, what I think is in part some of the best um, of America, which is, I think, why, you know, there was an article um, written soon after I launched titled... um, uh, Donald Trump's worst nightmare runs for governor of Maryland. And uh, I think it is because in I... In reference to you. In reference to me. Um, because I think that, you know, I am the antithesis to You're Donald Trump. You're smiling when you say that. It is my badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> Forget any other credential. Um, it is my badge of honor because I do think it is important in politics, politics today to show that uh, the best of America is... Um, truly representative of America. And I am a woman. I'm a minority. I'm an immigrant. Um, I'm a new mom. Um, and I think Congratulations. That, uh, thank you very much. Um, and I think highlighting um, our diversity as a strength and not a weakness is critically important. So as we approach the end of this podcast, Krish, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. I'd like to ask you to speak to the people of the state of Maryland, all six million of them, and I'd like you to speak to them on this podcast right now about why it is that it's so important that for you to have dedicated your life to public service, whether it was in the legal system, whether it was for the Obama administration, or now as a candidate, and what you hope will be your legacy, win or lose, uh, for the people in the state of Maryland. I appreciate that question, because quite candidly, we're at a time where people are looking for true leadership. And I think they're looking for a new generation of ideas with a clear, compelling vision. And if the Obamas taught me anything, it was that a new generation of leadership with that vision can change the world. And for me, it's not about changing the world. It's about returning Maryland to what it was when I grew up here. Um, It was a land of opportunity. And so I want to make sure every child, every family, every 
immigrant, um, every you know, um, farmer and firefighter, every waitress and waterman, um, every mother and daughter, every father and child has the same chance I did to succeed. And what that means is returning Maryland to the beacon of hope and courage that it once was. We should be leading this country when it comes to our educational system. We should have a stronger economy than any other state so that any child who wants to stay in their hometown has a chance to do so. I think sometimes as Democrats we have taken um, for granted uh, Democrats across the state um, and we have written off independents and Republicans. And I think we have an opportunity more than ever today because people are looking for something new. Um, to really reach those people. And so I sometimes say that, you know, my, uh, my sort of um, approach is that I want, uh, you know, my campaign to be about being one of us for all of us. Um, and by that, what I mean is that, you know, I crisscrossed the state when I launched this campaign because I wanted every Marylander to know that I'm not just campaigning for their vote, but that when I win and I serve as governor, I will be the governor of all of Maryland. And that's where I think we have an opportunity because today more than ever, um, you know, there are families that are struggling. There are people who are hoping that their children can have a better education, that they can have better paying jobs, and we can deliver on that. But I think what we need to do is find someone like me who is an outsider to politics but who has been able to get things done from the inside. When I was at the State Department, I helped manage a $51.6 billion budget. When I was at the White House, I led a $4 billion initiative, as I mentioned. Um, I have had a career in law and business as well, and I think this is what we need for Maryland to forge ahead today. And that has been Krish Vignaraja, the Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, a former policy director for Michelle Obama, senior advisor for Secretaries of State Clinton and Kerry, a former law clerk, who presents a logical syllogism under the philosophy of, quote, one of us for all of us, end quote. She presents a narrative of education, which leads to job creation, which leads to living and fulfilling the American dream, which leads to a path of public service to perpetuate that dream for others. She speaks about uh, using job creation, economic growth, and education as the vehicles for enabling others to actualize uh, their own vision of the American dream. And uh, you will find Democrats in a closed primary on June 26, 2018, Krish's name on your ballot. And uh, she asks that you consider her for your vote. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Jordan, it was a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240 240- 630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.